Let us pray. Almighty God, during this season of Lent, we ask that you motivate us and enable us to open our minds and our hearts to hear thy holy scripture and to do thy will from it. Now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I forgot to write down exactly what I call the class today, but close enough to say, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Oop. Pretty close. Steve has it here. Be ye transformed. Okay, well, the, the longer one I like better, but the shorter <laughs> one fits better on the purple sheet uh, and in the adventurer. That comes from chapter 12, Romans. Right, sorry. Um, comes from chapter 12 of Romans. We hear it all the time. But before we get to chapter 12, I want to wrap up chapter 11. And I'll read the last passage that we didn't get to last week and then make a couple of points about it and uh, then speak to chapter 12 as the opening of the fourth of the four sections of Paul's epistle. So, to wrap up, chapter 11 and beginning at verse 25. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the Deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. <clears throat> For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We might read this as the wrapping up of Paul's entire epistle because of the way he ends it. And Stott quotes a theologian who writes that in this last three verses that we read, 33 through 35, or rather four, 33 through 36, that it's almost like Paul is a mountaineer and he's gotten to the precipice of this tall peak that he's been climbing and he turns around to survey everything down below him that he has that he has walked up from and he is singing praises with the beauty 
of the landscape that he's looking at. Let's grapple with a couple of difficult things. In verse 25, he writes about hardening of hearts. I want you to understand a hardening has come upon part of Israel. Well, this is very much like what he wrote in earlier in the chapter about God giving Israel a sluggish spirit or placing a stumbling block, quoting King David from the Psalms. And in verse 32, he writes that God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. With our understanding of English, of the translations, it's tempting to read this as God doing this to us, making us be naughty, if you want to put it in a, in a very childish way. But it's not that. To go back to what we talked about last week, where Paul is explaining how Israel's stumble has opened the door for the Gentiles. He says that, that God gave them a sluggish spirit but we don't translate that to mean that God caused Israel to stumble against Israel's will. Rather, that God permitted Israel to stumble contrary to his will. And the distinction is important because it goes to the nature of our fallen original sin that it is always our will to do that which is different from God's. And the whole history of Israel, which is a kind of a, a microcosm for the history of all humanity, is that from time to time, God steps back from us and allows us to do that which he does not want us to do, but which we insist upon doing. That is to say, that he gives us the benefit of our free will, even when our exercise of our free will, or especially because our exercise of our free will is contrary to his will. So that's what he wants us to understand about Israel, that God stepped back and allowed Israel to reject his Messiah, but that Israel's rejection of his Messiah had opened the door to the Messiah being offered to all of the Gentile nations. And, as Paul was writing, looking forward, the acceptance by the Gentile nations of something which the nation of Israel had always thought of as their exclusive relationship makes Israel jealous and that Israel will come back into that relationship with God through Christ, and it will be ever more great than it is now when Israel comes back because of the... Gen so he describes it in a way that, that Stott expresses as sort of a ricochet effect. 
from Israel to the Gentiles, back to Israel, back to the benefit of the Gentiles. And so for the whole world. And so getting back to my counterfactual last week, which I listened to on the on the tape, and I realized after listening to it that I contradicted myself. So let me state it again. I don't say that God made Israel reject his Messiah in order that the Gentiles could have him. I say that God allowed Israel to do that which Israel wanted to do, and the great benefit of that is that the Gentile nations came to him. And the point of my counterfactual was that if if Israel had accepted Christ in the first century, then the pattern that we had seen through the Old Testament where occasional Gentiles came to the covenant with God that they had viewed as belonging to Israel might have been the subsequent 2,000 years. Only when the nations of the world, the Gentile world, accepted Christ in en masse, if you will, and became Christian, only then perhaps was it possible for, uh, only in seeing Christ as something other than Israel's exclusive relationship with God, could the Gentile nations do that. So it's not to say that God, God made Israel do that so that the Gentiles would accept him but that the effect of Israel stumbling and rejecting him has allowed us to accept Christ as something other than Israel's exclusive property. And that Israel's jealousy over the rest of the nations now having this covenant will eventually bring everybody into this new covenant. So that's the point that... um, that I believe Paul was making in uh, those three chapters that we refer to as um, God's plan. And so th- this is where he wraps it up, again, looking back at, 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 at the last four verses, where he, he marvels at the inscrutability of God's plan, the way God works out his plan in ways that we humans cannot understand but he quotes Isaiah and he quotes Job for who has known the mind of the Lord that's Isaiah who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return that's Job and that's a really interesting thought why do we accept why do we expect from God some sort of of explanation when we've never given God anything that would allow us to expect that that's our due To put it another way, how can the clay reject the potter? He's the potter. We're but the clay. How do we question how he intends to use the clay? But Paul's marveling is what brings to a close his third section. And now he turns in chapter 12 to the the last of his four sections about the will of God. And he starts chapter 12 with the will of how he wants us to be, which is, again, where I take my title for this week. 
Next week, Steve will lead us in um, chapter 13 about, about our relationship to our civil authorities. And this is where Paul lays out his case that, that government is, is ordained by God. But I don't want to steal, steal Steve's right thunder. No. Right but in chapter 12, what I would like to do because it's not very long. Chapter 12 is only like um, 21 verses. I'd like to read it all together, but I'd like to have three different people read it. In the first reading, I would appreciate if somebody would read only verses 1 and 2. In the second reading, only verses 3 through 8. In the third reading, the longest, but it's easy, I promise, verses 9 through 21. Anybody want to do... One through two? Brian will do that. Okay, Brian, you do one through two. How about three through eight? Alan? All right. And Steve, do you want to do nine through 21? Okay. So, uh, let us then read together and follow along chapter 12. Brian, go ahead. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think of with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, through many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you all. We might sum up the last chapters of the epistle to the Romans as Paul's description of what a Christian society looks like. And to sum up this chapter, we might say that this was Paul's explanation of what Christian transformation does to us as individuals. As Frank had characterized the um, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the parable was describing the effect of salvation on those who have been saved, uh, that they do unto under the least of these, his brothers. It's not an act of doing that causes salvation. It is the salvation which leads to the act of doing. This is what Paul is describing in chapter 12. And the purpose of breaking the readings down into three readers of, of, the, of the whole chapter at one time, it's very easy, I think, to see that the first two verses that Brian read are about individual Christians' relationship to God. And the second verse, bunch of verses that Alan read is about the Christian's relationship to himself or herself, how we deal with ourselves. And the third that Steve read is about how we deal with one another, both our friends and, and brothers and sisters in the Christian community and those who are outside of it, our enemies. I may have told some, I know I've told some of you this, probably not all, but during Lent I've been reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which is as great a primer on Christian understanding as one could ever ask for. I wish I had I wish I had the courage to distribute copies of it to all of my friends who are non-believers and maybe one day I will the ones I most I'm, I'm most engaged on this but the book is a transcription of a series of radio lectures that the BBC had um, commissioned CS Lewis to do during World War II and they were each about a 20 minute section so each chapter, it's divided into into five books, and each book has about four or five chapters, and each book deals with a specific issue. And Lewis develops in the first couple of books his argument for how there is a God and how Christianity is the true understanding of God, and then the rest of the books deal with how this Christian understanding motivates all that we do and it's amazing to think that that the BBC had him doing these on the radio during the war I can't imagine the BBC doing that today I can't imagine CBS NBC or ABC doing it either but nevertheless this is the transcribed and I, I tell you this to get around to my point that 
in the chapter that I've just been grappling with, um, Lewis is writing about morality. And he explains morality <coughs> as having three facets. Uh, the facet of how we deal with one another, the facet of how we deal with ourselves, and the facet of how we deal with God, which is exactly what chapter 12 is, is grappling with. And Lewis says that among all of the community, it's very easy to get a consensus about Christian morality as it deals with how we deal with one another. Because believers in other religions or believers in no religion can all agree that morality, a certain aspect of morality is not, not doing harm to anyone else, to conduct ourselves in ways that do not do damage to the rest of society. He said it's much more controversial when one talks about how one deals with himself. That is, the strain of thought in society that says, as long as I don't hurt one another, uh, anybody else, then what does it matter what I do with myself? And the third, the most controversial, is how we deal with God, because that's where our secular culture gets its backup. But he offers an interesting parallel that I think can kind of illuminate what Paul is writing here. He has two actual examples. He said the example of the orchestra. An orchestra is made up of different musicians, and each musician plays a particular instrument. And of course, each individual member, each musician, has to be practiced and trained, and his instrument has to be in tune. But then beyond the individual, as a group, each one of them have to work together. They've got to know how to follow the music and how to come in at the right moment and how to play the notes that are on the, on the, on the script or whatever you call sheet score. music, on the score. Right, thank you. Um, and, and to follow the conductor's rhythm or beat. Um, otherwise, it doesn't make good music. And the third point is that what if the what if the uh, orchestra has been um, ha has been engaged to play dance music and instead comes and plays a funeral dirge? The, th it, the it matters what they're doing. Uh, uh, another example is a fleet of ships. He gives um, in order to for the fleet to sail together for their purpose, they've each got to stay in formation. But in order to stay in formation, each ship has to be seaworthy so that it doesn't founder and sink or so that the engines don't break down and it causes the whole fleet to go into a jumble. But even when all of the ships are seaworthy and all of the ships can stay in proper formation, what good is it if the fleet is supposed to sail to New York but winds up in Calcutta? And that's exactly that's exactly uh, C.S. Lewis's illustration, a very good wartime illustration, I might add. But this is this is where Lewis gets back to saying that this morality really has three facets: how we deal with ourselves, how we deal with one another, and how we deal with God. And in opposite order, 
is what Paul addresses here. First, um, in the in the two verses that that Brian read, um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Stott writes that. Paul used the word bodies perhaps in a way to shock his Greek readers. We've talked about this before, how in Greek thinking it was that the body is sort of like the tomb for the soul. The soul is the beautiful thing and the body is the corrupt thing. And there was a school of thought in the early church that it didn't really matter very much what we do with our bodies so that sexual immorality is no big deal because, because after all, it's what the soul does that matters. And that's where Paul was addressing this earlier in his epistle. Uh, we, we don't sin so that grace may abound. We don't do that because we... And, and he says the same point here. Present your bodies... He might have written yourselves, he might have written your souls, but he didn't. He, he wrote, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, almost invoking the living sacrifice of Christ's passion. But what's the point of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice? How do we do that? What does it look like? Does it? Do we climb onto a cross? Do we immolate ourselves in the flames like a, another kind of sacrifice in the Old Testament? Well, no. We transform ourselves by the renewing of our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but renew your minds and therefore transform yourself. And that's the way we are presenting our bodies as a perfect offering. It gets back to Paul's illustration about being dead to the law. We are not dead to the law in the sense that we don't care about the law anymore, but we have transformed ourselves by looking to the grace and the fulfillment and the transformation of ourselves as living in a new relationship to the law. So that's the transformation that I think is um, is what Paul is writing about. To put it in the context that uh, of either one of C.S. Lewis's examples, the um, the flute player does not look to the violinist for guidance on how to play the flute. The flute player looks to the score and to the conductor to wait for the moment that according to the score and the conductor's motion, that's when the flute player plays. By the same token, we don't look to the world for how we deal with God. We instead keep our eyes on God. C.S. Lewis may be rolling over in his grave by my... Uh, perceived misuse of his metaphor, but it, it worked for me. The second section, the section that Alan read, is about our relationship to ourselves. And this is, again, this is where Lewis 
grapples with those in society who would say, well, so long as I don't hurt anybody else, what does it matter? It's just, this is my body. This is, you know, I'll do with it whatever I want. And, it, and if, if, as long as I don't hurt anybody else, what do you care? Well, Lewis writes, that might be a very decent position to take if, for example, if I am the homeowner and I own the house outright, I am the landlord of the house. What I do with my house is my business. But what if I think of it as I am the tenant in the house? Then I have a set of obligations for how I keep the house that goes beyond um, my own obligations to myself. I have an obligation to the landlord. So by the same token, since we have an obligation to the landlord, it, it matters what we do with ourselves. So how do we do that? First, do not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We practice humility. Notice all the way through this chapter how Paul writes of us as beloved. Uh, we see it over and over, and he uses the words love over and over. And in Greek, he uses the two Greek words that are most relevant here, love for one another, which is brotherly love, philios, and and agape love, which is the spiritual love. And in the sense of being beloved, the word for beloved is, literally means those of you who have received agape love. So when he writes that we are beloved in the way we deal with our, ourselves and with one another, he is making a very important point the reason that we owe that obligation to the landlord up there is that we have been the recipients of agape spiritual love. There's an obligation. We've been loved in a way that we don't deserve. That creates a sort of an obligation that, that we can't shrug off. So as we deal with ourselves, we start with humility knowing not only our gifts, but also our limitations. Because after all, the knowledge that we were loved, even though we were unworthy of that love, should lead to nothing other than humility, right? So as Paul is writing about how we deal with one another in the, in the, um, in the church, in the, amongst believers, he uses the same metaphor that we that we see in others of his epistles where he describes it almost like each member of the church is a different part of the body um, the heart can't pick up things and grasp them only the hand can do that the hand can't um, can't think only the brain can do that the brain can't digest food. Only the stomach can do that. And only when all of those parts are working together properly does the body function the way the body ought to function. And this is the, this is the illustration that he gives. It's the same illustration as the, as the symphony. Um, the flute player, the, 
violinist, the symbolist, the drummer, the every other one, they all have their own roles to play. And so, as Paul is describing amongst ourselves, amongst our Christian community, in the way we deal with God, we serve in the context of the church because we are parts of the church. We are one ship in the formation that makes the fleet under the admiral who is directing us to New York. And finally, the, the section that Steve read, our relationships with others, both those who love us and those who do not love us, who are our enemies. Um, note how many of these that Steve read bear a startling resemblance to things Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul wasn't present for the Sermon on the Mount. Paul, no doubt, had spoken to others who were present at the Sermon on the Mount. We know from the book of Acts that Paul um, had lots of dealings with Peter and with John and with the others of the apostles back in Jerusalem. But it's almost uncanny the way that some of these directions uh, live in harmony with one another. Do not claim to be wiser than you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. I mean, how many times did we hear that from Christ? It's almost as though Paul is channeling the Sermon on the Mount here, that without having heard it with his own ears, nevertheless, I think this is a pretty good argument for the divine revelation in Scripture. Paul is, um, is repeating that which um, is most fundamental for the Christian um view of the rest of humanity and how we are how we who have been transformed deal with the rest of the world. Um, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. How many times have we heard that? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I think that's exactly what Paul is writing about here. Lead us not into temptation. We rebel against that. Why would, why would God do that? Why would God tempt us the way Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness. Well, if we think back to what what Paul wrote about God and Israel, what we're asking, what we're really asking God to do is, is, Lord, don't step back and allow us to do that which is contrary to your will. Instead, Lord, keep us, motivate us to keep on the straight and narrow and that way deliver us from evil. The two go together. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The same idea Paul is expressing here. Dear Lord, don't let us be overcome by evil. 
even though we want to, but instead motivate us, allow us, permit us by thy grace to overcome evil with good. It's totally contrary to our nature. It is contrary to everything we're about. Finally, and I will open it up to discussion, anybody who wants to say anything about this, in, I believe it was the first epistle of, of John, he has an absolutely classic, timeless admonition to all of the believers. He writes, Beloved, let us love one another at all times. Or in the Greek, which is beautiful in the Greek, agapatoi, agapomen, alilos. Love one another at all times. Agapatoi, beloved, those of you who have received, those of us who have received spiritual love, let us give spiritual love to each other always at all times. That is the the sentiment that Paul is expressing here at the end of chapter 12. We have been loved. Let us show that transformation by loving one another at all times.